If you're a guest with us today, I'm delighted that you're here. If you're worshiping with us online, I'm delighted that you're worshiping with us and listening and tuning in. We're in a series called Grounded, and today we're going to talk about Grounded by Faith. Nothing is more fundamental to a building or to construction than the foundation. You can learn a lot about a builder by the kind of foundation he lays for the structure he's about to build. Jesus concluded his masterpiece Sermon on the Mount with a profound parable about this very principle. The wise man built his house upon a rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and when the rains and storms and floods came, only one of the houses stood, the house with the firm foundation. When it comes to building our relationship with the Lord, there is nothing more fundamental than our faith. Faith serves as bookends on our spiritual journey. Our spiritual journey begins with faith and it ends with faith. Our last breath in this world must be breathed with faith in God. It covers everything from A to Z. Romans 1.17 confirms that. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. There it is, from A to Z, from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, that which is in quotes comes from the book of Habakkuk. Maybe you remember that from our study of the Old Testament prophets this summer. That's a quote from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. So, you see, our faith is essential to our Christian experience. By faith, we live. Now, there are, there are far too many scriptures that talk about this concept of faith, but can I just give you a handful this morning that I hope will be an encouragement that will remind you these are great verses to be able to use. You may already be living by faith, but you probably have friends or coworkers or students or family members who are struggling with this whole issue of faith, even though it's not a struggle for you. Take some notes here of these passages of Scripture so you can begin to help encourage them. I love this. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith or by faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then Hebrews chapter 11 is just this chapter resplendent with faith. Verse 3 opens up like this, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on and he lists several people who live their lives by faith. And in verse 13 he concludes this, he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. See, it's from A to Z, it's from that first breath to the last breath. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. That's what faith is. It's, it's believing that which we cannot tangibly hold on to at this moment or see, but it's about our life going on knowing that God has promised and we, he will keep that promise. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on this earth. 
Do you realize that in just chapter 11 of Hebrews, just in chapter 11 in Hebrews, the, the phrase by faith occurs 24 times. We live by faith. It is essential to our Christian experience. We get that. And you say, yeah, but what is this faith that we're talking about? Well, there's a lot of people who, who kind of have a negative view of faith. H.L. Mencken, the, the famous journalist, said, faith may be defined as an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. An illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. Now, I don't believe that. Uh, obviously, some people believe that, but I don't believe that. I don't think that describes faith uh, at all. Uh, I don't believe that when you live by faith, you have to park your brain in neutral and surrender your reason at the door. I much prefer the view taken by John Lennox. Now, John Lennox is a philosopher, mathematician, and Christian apologist. He teaches at Oxford University and has made a study of the relationship between science and religion. He has debated such profound atheists as Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and many others. Many compare him to being a 21st century C.S. Lewis, and, and he says this, faith is not a leap in the dark. It is the exact opposite. It is a commitment based on evidence. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is a commitment based on evidence. And let me add this too. Faith and belief are not synonymous. Sometimes people use them interchangeably. They should not. Now, faith incorporates belief, yes, but there is another key element to our faith that is indispensable, and it is the concept of trust. You can believe something without trusting in that. If you only believe, you do not have faith. Faith is vital with both of those components, belief and trust. For instance, believing in the power of prescription drugs doesn't require a whole lot of reason. Prescription drugs have been around for a long time. We know they help make us better. But when your doctor prescribes a prescription drug for you and you read all of the side effects, potential side effects of that particular drug, you're not exactly sure if you want to take it. He's prescribed it and you believe in the power of that prescription drug, but it is not faith until you swallow the first capsule. You see, that's the trust when you say, I believe and I trust that this will make me better. When the doctor says, the tests seem to indicate that cancer has invaded your body and it needs to be removed, and you say, that's just a surprise. I don't feel the cancer. I've never seen the cancer. Uh, I can't touch the cancer. I feel just fine. You're not experiencing this with your five senses. You're only going on the basis of an x-ray or a CAT scan. The doctor says, yes, but, but here it is. Now, you may believe the CAT scan. You may believe the doctor, but it isn't faith until you lay down on the operating table and the surgeon takes his scalpel and removes the cancer from your body. You see, what you did was you placed your life based on the evidence of the test that was run on you. Faith is believing that brings about trusting. We get that too. It's the, it's the combination. But here's the real question. Does faith in the God of the Bible make sense? This is where most of us really want some answers. How can I know for sure that my faith placed in the God of the Bible is the right way to go? Can we know who this God is? Can we scientifically prove that he exists? What 
what can I do to know that my faith is placed in a reasonable place, that, it, that he is worthy of my trust? Well, I wish I had time this morning, first of all, to go through all of this research that, that, that would give evidence to the fact that he exists. But I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Whether you believe it or not at this moment, would you just assume for a moment that God does exist, that he's the creator of, of the universe and specifically us and life on this globe and has an interest in us? Now, can I prove that scientifically? No, I cannot. Strictly speaking, something must be repeatable to qualify as scientific proof. And I cannot prove that God exists by my five senses from that standpoint. But there are a lot of things that I cannot prove scientifically, that I cannot prove by my five senses, that are worthy of our belief. If you believe that George Washington was our nation's first president, you can't prove that by science. That's not repeatable. You can't prove that with your five senses. Not one of you in this room, myself included, ever talked with George Washington. We don't have that kind of a, uh, of a relationship, so we've not experienced him from our five senses. And yet, who would doubt that George Washington was our first president? History, eyewitness testimony, archaeological evidence all points to the fact. And how would he have ended on the $1 bill if he hadn't been the first of our presidents? Well, besides, what I'm trying to say with regard to all this is that if you believe George Washington was our first president, and who wouldn't, the same evidence can be applied to our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, however, must be reasonable, and it must be sensible, and based on good evidence. Professor Paul Fristney says this, he said, you can't achieve faith by reason, but reason supports our faith. So, for faith to matter, it must be reasonable. Now, there are, there are people who believe in things that I don't think are sensible and reasonable because there's no really good evidence to support it. For instance, there are some that still believe that the earth is flat. There is a flat earth society, and there are members of that society that believe we are flat, like a CD disc spinning out in space. Are you, did you know that 8%, 8% of Americans surveyed believe that Elvis is still alive and the body that is buried at Graceland is nothing but a wax replica of him? 8%. 36% of Americans surveyed said that it is very likely or somewhat likely that federal officials participated in the 9-11 attacks on New York City. A third of the American populace believes that it is possible or even probable that our government was involved in those horrid attacks. There's no evidence. It's not credible. It, it, something has to be reasonable or sensible before it is worthy of your trust and your faith. The unfortunate thing is that so many people put faith all into that same category. Spiritual faith, any kind of faith. Faith is ridiculous. Who wants to live by faith? Here's the deal. Everybody lives by faith somehow or in something. Even the most ardent atheist must take the beginning of life in this world by faith since no one knows how it happened because there is no conclusive as evidence ever discovered to suggest how it came about. So if you want to believe it's a random accident, go ahead, but that's a statement of faith. Just know that. You're accepting it by faith. 
My faith in God this morning is based on what I believe to be historical evidence, eyewitness testimony, ar- testimony, archaeological evidence, and personal experience. It's still faith, but it's not based on wishful thinking or religious platitudes or absurd hunches. It is based on reasonable, sensible evidence to which I can make a commitment. Now, I don't want any of you walking out of here this morning and saying, well, Tom believes, so I guess I'll believe. Don't do that, all right? Use your own brain. Deepen your thinking. Study hard. Look at the evidence for your own sake. Because if you only believe because I'm telling you this morning, then you won't be able to defend that. You need to know how to defend your faith and be able to present it to somebody else in a logical way. Don't follow the crowd. Any dipstick can do that. Don't follow the crowd. Besides, the crowd's track record of wise choices isn't all that great when you stop and think about it. So, use your brain, do your own study so that you know why you believe and trust God. And who is this God that we are supposed to trust? Well, I wish time would allow us to go through a lot of scriptures. Let me just give you a couple here of what the Bible says about our God. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. From the book of Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and listen, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is saying God is the glue that holds us and the universe together. All you need to do is read those three verses and you know what the Bible claims about God. That he is the ultimate, that there is no one like him, that he is everywhere and in everything holding us together. But is that true? Many in our culture would certainly doubt that. David Faust wrote about a woman whose view is somewhat kind of typical of today. Uh, She was confused because she believed a lot or a little about a lot of different religions. She came up with a name that she felt was rather neutral. She didn't want to call him God. She didn't want to call him this. She didn't want to call him that. And so she came up with big fuzzy white thing. That was her name for the divine because she felt that that didn't have any religious baggage from any other group. It was sort of a neutral name and it didn't offend anybody. I don't know if she asked God if it was offensive to him because I would think that would be offensive to God. Big fuzzy white thing. But for her, it was her way of dealing with all of this confusion. She took all these different pieces and parts that she liked and tried to put them together. And that was her faith. And you say, well, that's okay. She's got the right to do that. Yeah, she does. Well, can we ever know? I mean, who can say what God is like? Can't I just visualize God in my mind the way I need him to be? Can't I just take the parts I like best from every spiritual concept? Can't I just picture God the way I need him for my life, even though you may picture him different. Isn't that okay for us all to just picture God the way we want to picture God? And the simple answer to that is, no, you can't. It's not fair. It's not right. 
God doesn't want you creating him in your image. If I were God, I would be offended at that. Swiss theologian Karl Barth said that there are only two ways to attain knowledge of God. One is to begin with man and reason upward. That's creating God in our image. The other is to begin with God and accept his revelation down to us. Unfortunately, most people today take the first option and they reason upward. I think God is like, and there goes their reason. When we as human beings reason upward, God becomes a creation of our imagination. Our problem is the fact that all religions of the world give us different images and they can't all be right. When you start taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you try to put it all together and say, I'm really comfortable with this religious view. You can't do that because not all of the religions of the world say the same thing. And when two different religions say two different things, both of them can't be right. Now, they can both be wrong, but they, they both can't be right. Ravi Zacharias explains it like this, truth by definition excludes that which contradicts it. If there is a truth that you believe is right and there is something that contradicts it, then one of the two has to be wrong. Therefore, logically speaking, all religions could be wrong, but there is no way that all of the religions of the world can be right because they are contradictory. Let me give you just a summary of the religions of the world, and, and the summary is this, is something that, that really applies to every one of them other than Christianity. In the religions of the world, it is taught that humanity must take the initiative to reach God. In other words, human beings have to reach up and they have to get the attention of a God who is distant and distracted and really doesn't want to have anything to do with us unless we beg and plead enough. In the religions of the world, no sacrifice for sin has been provided. Humanity is left to work through its own sin in some way. And in fact, some religions don't even have the concept of sin. Some religions don't have the concept of forgiveness. In the religions of the world, there is no such thing as saving grace. Humanity works out its own salvations by deeds that somehow merit the goodness of the God they're seeking to please. Every religion of the world ultimately offers a salvation that is earned by the disciple. Salvation, therefore, becomes a wage, not a gift. In the religions of the world, there is no assurance of eternal peace. Since it depends on our efforts to reach out to a God, we never know all through our lives if we've done enough, if the scales will tip in our direction. And so when you die, you don't know if there's any other good life beyond because you don't know what that God may require of you and whether or not you've done enough. That's the religions of the world. But that is not the faith that I hold on to. That's not what I believe in, in, in Christ. And yet so many people say, well, it doesn't really matter what this believes and what that believes and what you believe. They're all just different paths going up to the mountain and, and at the top of the mountain, we will meet God there. But what if I told you this morning that the God of the universe came down the mountain in order to reach us? Wouldn't that be the God you'd want to find? Wouldn't that be the God that you would like to follow? Not the one that sits at the top waiting for us to make it up to the top of the mountain, exhausted to find it, but the one who came down the mountain to find us? Wouldn't that make a difference in your faith? 
And whenever I think of this picture of God coming down the mountain to reach us, my mind goes back to a, a trip eight years ago. I am haunted by this image. I've told you this story before. When Brad and I sat in a Hindu seminary in India, and we listened to these 12-year-old young men chant, what, what haunts me is not the sound of the chanting, but the look on their faces, the, the emptiness in their eyes, the blankness of their expression as they sung to try and send their message up the mountain to gods that were distracted who weren't listening in hopes that somehow the gods would pour favor on them. And when they were done chanting, they turned to us and said, what do you believe? And they specifically asked me, what do you believe? And I was so glad I could tell them the story that Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, where in that story, the father, when the son comes home, the father who represents God came running down the path to welcome his child home. You see, that's the difference. We're not going up the mountain to find God. God came down the mountain to find us. I believe it is essential not to reason upward, but to accept God's revelation down to us. You see, that parable, that, that parable of the prodigal son is a snapshot in God's photo album that he has given to us. All the parables are a snapshot of him. And God has given us other snapshots through the preaching of the prophets. God's given us snapshots through creation around us if we'll take time to notice. There are a whole lot of snapshots, but God realized that a photo album with snapshots in it and words in it was not enough, and so he came. He said, i got to do one more thing. I've got to go meet these people, and so he came. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you, know who God, if you want to know who God is, then study the life and the person of Jesus Christ. I like this quote from Elton Trueblood. This historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It is far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus John opens up his gospel with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh, became one of us, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, became one of us and made his dwelling among us. Here, here's the bottom line. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. If you've seen God, you've seen Jesus. They are one and because of Jesus, Christianity stands apart from the religions of the world. Do you know how it differs? Well, let me give you a summary. Let's go back to that list I gave you a minute ago. Here's how Christianity differs. In Christianity, we do not take the initiative to seek God. God has already taken the initiative to seek us first. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In Christianity, we do not make the sacrifice for sin. God did that on our behalf. In, in, in fact, we are incapable. Our sin disqualifies us from making a sacrifice. But God did. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Christianity, we do not earn our salvation. It is a gift. That passage that I read from Ephesians chapter 2 ends by saying, this is not of works so that no one can boast. It's the free gift of God. 
And in Christianity, we know our eternal destiny because it does not depend upon our works, our deeds, our goodness. It depends upon the promise of God. God has said, if you follow my son, you have eternal life. It's his promise, not our goodness. Where can you find a picture of God anywhere else like that? Christianity then is not a religion, it is a relationship. It's not a matter of trying hard, it's a matter of trusting with all of our heart. And from the very beginning, God has told his story of redemption over and over and over again so that we would not miss it. It just flows throughout history, it flows throughout creation, it flows in every aspect of life. Now, I have shown you these things before in different ways, but I want to show them to you in a, just a pattern this morning so that you so you realize what God has been doing through the ages to communicate to us that everything comes down to one moment. If you're looking for reasonable faith, if you're looking for faith that can lead you to a commitment, here it is. When the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness following their escape from Egypt, God had them built this worship center. It was called the tabernacle. It was a tent that they would take with them, and it was there that worship was, uh, was uh, uh, enjoined. And when the tribes, the 12 tribes camped out around the tabernacle based on the size of the tribes, based on whether they were on the east, west, north, or south of the tribe, if you were standing on a mountain and looking down on the tribes around the tabernacle, this is the picture you would have seen. It is a cross spelled out. Now, the Israelites couldn't have seen that. They wouldn't have known what it meant because the cross was not used as a form of punishment back then. But God could see, and God knew that we could someday see. There is a picture even in the Old Testament of this grand and glorious moment in history. God has told it to us in protein. When the protein laminin was discovered, one of the early papers on the subject described it in these words, globular and rod-like domains are arranged in an extended forearm cruciform shape that is well-suited for mediating between distant sites on cells. <laughs> Laminate is a glue-like protein that anchors cells together or mediates the distance. If you've seen the molecular structure before, see it again. Here is its picture. It is a cross, and it mediates between these cells, and it holds them together just as Jesus mediates between us and heaven and holds us to God. God told the story through our circulatory system. When the Old Testament says life is in the blood, there's more to that than you realize. When your body is wounded in your circulatory system, the white blood cells rush to the scene of the accident in order to keep the bacteria from destroying our lives. And so the white blood cells in, encompass, they wrap themselves around the bacterium and they draw out of that bacterium the toxins and poisons. And when it's dead, they discard it. And then they wrap themselves around another one and pull the toxins and poisons out of it, discarding that until the white blood cell itself has absorbed so much poison that itself dies fighting to keep us alive. You don't have to be a brain scientist to understand the picture there. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, he became sin so that we might have life. He pulled into himself the poisons of sin so that we might have life. God has shown it from the far reaches of the universe. At the very core of the Whirlpool Galaxy, a galaxy that is some 35 million light years away from us, 
there is this glorious image captured by the Hubble telescope. From the far reaches of the universe to us, in the midst of his creation, God is shouting. It is the cross that makes all the difference. And then when you study through the Bible and you see all of these three-day stories, where the first two days everything seems to be falling apart and on the third day everything comes together in such triumph, you're reading God's Word over and over again, pointing us to that moment in time which gives our faith credibility. The cross and the resurrection form the basis of our commitment. They are the foundation. That keeps us grounded. You put all these images together and you cannot miss the story. During the Parliament of Religions at the Chicago Exposition in 1893, Joseph Cook was one of the speakers. As a matter of fact, they had the platform set up. It was kind of in a semicircular design, and all the religions of the world had their spokespeople up on the platform. Joseph Cook was the last one on the end, and he spoke last. Each was allotted a certain amount of time, and they espoused the values of their religious beliefs and why it was important for people to embrace their religion. Went around the semicircle as every one of these religions was represented. Finally, it came down to Joseph Cook, and he stood up to represent Christianity as a whole. And he said to the audience, it started in kind of an unusual way. He took Shakespeare's Macbeth, and he told the story of how Lady Macbeth had killed the king so her husband could rise to that position. But once she had committed the murder, she couldn't sleep. She couldn't rest. She couldn't get away from the guilt of her deed. And she went around the house rubbing her hands together over and over again, just rubbing them as if to wipe off the imaginary spots of blood on her wrists. And her words as he shouted, of them echoed through the assembled chamber. What? Will these hands never be clean? And in that breathless moment, he turned to the people who were sitting on the back of the platform in that circle and he said, does your religion have anything that can take away those spots? Not one of them responded. And then he turned to the audience and he said, thank God I do. For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses every stain. There is no one like Jesus Christ. There is no God like our God. There, there never was, there never will be. He is supreme. He is one. Do you know this morning the God that came running down the path to embrace you as his child? Are you on solid ground? Is your faith well grounded? Can you say with all assurance as the hymn writer wrote it, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand.